God speaks to us in his word in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory." So is it with the resurrection of the death, dead? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Katie. Good morning. You guys hear me okay? Cool. That's helpful. Um, well, like Ben said, my name is Blake Randolph. Um, my wife, Grace, and I get to help serve and lead in a bunch of different ministries here in the church. Um, and we're honored to get to do that. And I'm, I'm honored to also get to, to do this right now and, and stand and, and get to talk with you about the Bible for a little while. Um, if you are a guest in the room or just recently started attending, and especially if you uh, are a guest who, who just hasn't maybe been to church in a little while, or if you're not sure what you believe about Christianity and about Jesus, I just wanna say off the bat, I think Ben has also said it and several other people have, that we're really glad that you're here with us. Um, it can be a hard thing to go to church if you don't usually go. Um, church can kind of feel weird. Um, it's not lost on me right now that having a dude stand and talk to you for a long time is kind of weird, right? So thank you for being here. Thanks for, thanks for giving us your Sunday morning. Um, we wanna honor that and just say that it's courageous and we're, we're proud of you for that. Uh, so like I just said, it, it's a little weird to sit and just listen to a person talk for an extended period of time, but I just want to, first of all, call our, to our attention a couple of things. And the first is that the Bible actually says that when God speaks, it's a really profound thing. And I'm not God, and I'm not necessarily saying that I have the word of God, but we are going to hear the word of God this morning, and I'm going to try to do my best to, to talk about it and explain certain parts of it. So, like, God created everything that exists by speaking is what the Bible says. The Bible also says that God upholds the universe by the word of his power, right? Uh, the Bible says that God is able to speak and sing over his people to call them to himself. So God speaking is a really profound and deep thing. So when he does that, I think it's in our best interest to perk up and listen. Today's text is kind of a weird one, right? We're talking about multiple different people named Adam, maybe. We're talking about multiple different kinds of bodies. 
Um, it's, it's kind of a strange text and it's long too. And we're going to talk through this long text and have a bunch of different points that hopefully help us, help us get the idea of what's going on. But I just want to say like, um, let's pay attention and be awake this morning. If you're a note taker, today is going to be your day. Like there's a lot of points happening today. So um, would you pray with me and we'll get uh, started in the text. Go ahead and pray for me too while you're praying and I'll pray for all of us. You can pray for my nerves. You can pray for my brain to like work in a way that's good at all. So let's pray. Um, God, we love you. We are thankful that you speak uh, things into existence. We're thankful that you speak and call names to make us new. Um, And we pray, Lord, that today you would help us to hear your voice. I pray that you'd help me to hear your voice today. Help me to listen to your voice and not just try and say stuff that I think is good or clever or cool, but help me to say stuff that actually would be from you, that would be helpful, that would build up your church. Um, Lord, yeah, we trust you to build us up. We trust you to make us new. We trust you to keep us alive. We ask all of these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So um, we've been reading through the book of 1 Corinthians for a long time as a church. Uh, It's a long book. It's written by a man named Paul uh, thousands of years ago to a church in an ancient city named Corinth. Um, This is during the time of the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman culture. So we've had a lot of sermons about the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're getting close to the end of the book. There's only 16 chapters in this letter. So if you're curious about what Paul has been talking about for the rest of the letter, he ends in chapter 15 with this like kind of climactic moment talking about Jesus's resurrection and our resurrection, and we'll explain that in a bit. Um, But if you're interested in maybe seeing some of what else Paul has had to say to this church in Corinth and what it could mean for our lives, All of those sermons from this series are actually on um, pretty much anywhere you could find a podcast, like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It's also on our website. So go check those out. I think that'd be helpful as we're coming to the end of something that maybe we missed parts of. Um, Okay, let's get into 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. And let me just start um, with this thought. Um, I really like post-apocalyptic books and movies, I think they're really interesting. Like uh, when I was a kid, I was a weird kid, but I was really into like the War of the Worlds, if you've ever heard of that book, or there's been a couple of movies on that one. Like aliens come and destroy everything and people are trying to live afterwards. And I think it's interesting to see like what authors and directors like do with the idea of like a blank slate, like civilization, we gotta start all over again, or the world just kind of ends and how are we gonna get through it afterwards? Um, It's an interesting thought for me, and it's kind of fascinating. I like the way that people are creative about it. But there's also an assumption behind those books or stories that I think we as Christians should be aware of. And the assumption behind those books and our stories are, like, if the world lasts long enough, eventually we're going to get to those places. And stuff isn't going to go well, right? So it's got a very low view of human history, of, uh, of just the story of mankind in them. And I think as Christians, we have to be willing to ask the question like to the opposite end. Post-apocalyptic movies and books, those are fine. I read them, I watch them. I think they're creative and interesting. But like as Christians, can we be hopeful about the future? And shouldn't we be hopeful about the future? Like don't those movies and books assume something that we as Christians would say like, well, Not because mankind figured it out, but because it's in the hands of God. No, that's not true. That's not the end of our story. Um, We actually do have hope for the future, and we should be joyful about the future and hopeful about it. 
There's this theologian from the, from the 1900s named Alexander Schmemann, and he uh, says that Christians of all people should be most joyful. And that's not always my experience, and I'm sure it's not always your experience of yourself as a Christian or other people as Christians. But if what we believe is actually true, then it should affect our lives in that kind of way, that we're actually hopeful about the future. Not about human history because it's human history, but about God's control over it. So sometimes Christians, um, we're tempted to sort of like punt on those questions about the end of our story, about the end times, right? It's a scary subject. It's kind of a weird subject to talk about. We're scared that maybe other people outside of the church would think that we're too escapist. We're just like trying to get out of here or we think that we're crazy. And that's, that's okay, right? Those are obvious ditches that we want to avoid. But we actually have been exploring the fact that the end of our story, because it's began in the truth of Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, who really came and lived on earth, who really died a death that pays the penalty for all of the wrong things that we've ever done in our lives, and who was really raised from the dead to help us also conquer over death by his power, right? Because that's all true, then the way that we think about the end of our story, the way that we think about our story right now, that's also changed. That stuff matters. So we don't actually get to punt on those questions, and we also actually have to really consider how hopeful and how joyful our future is in Jesus. So we've been reading through the chapter 15 of the letter to the first, the first letter to the Corinthians um, about all of the consequences of like believing in the resurrection of Jesus and in our resurrection, which is going to come in the future. What we believe about the conclusion of our story matters. It changes how we live now. If our destiny in Christ only involves like spiritual realities, like we either just go to heaven as like a little spirit on a cloud or we go to hell, then that actually changes how we live now. If our destiny in Christ only involves those things, we'll be tempted to spiritualize our faith and not really care about being obedient with our lives, with our hands. It just matters if we believe with our brains or our hearts. And that's not true. If Christianity's version of the story is made up, Ben told us last week, because Paul tells us, right, that the end doesn't matter. Like, we might as well just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's what Paul said last week. So last week, Ben Hill, our pastor, was exploring the consequences of the truth of the resurrection for us. If Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, that matters to us. Some of the Corinthians in the church uh, of Corinth, like, just were tempted to deny that future of bodily resurrection, that the future, the end of our story as human beings in Jesus is that our bodies would be raised from the dead. That's what bodily resurrection means. Like you're gonna go into the grave someday, but in Jesus, you're not gonna stay there. He's gonna raise up your body and you'll still have a heartbeat and you can still be touched just like Jesus was touched after he raised from the dead. And because they were tempted to sort of turn away from that belief, they're like, I don't know, that doesn't seem like it could be right, right? Then Paul has been building a case showing them all the consequences of that, right? Jesus's resurrection is a historical reality. It makes a difference for our actually future, our story, and it makes a difference for how we live today. Today, we're gonna look at why the bodily resurrection of us is true, what bodily resurrection is, how it will come, and why it matters so much. So let's start at the top. The truth of the bodily resurrection. Why is it true? Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? He says, you foolish person. That's kind of a harsh move, right? So the church in Corinth was kind of like, 
All throughout the book of Corinthians, we've seen this. The way that the city around them and the culture around them had been tempting them to sort of turn away from things that they knew were true about their faith, right? And the resurrection is one of those things, right? Greco-Roman culture, like the philosopher Plato, super, super influential in the Roman world, in the Greek world, right? And Plato said actually that the body is a prison for your soul. Like, bodies and souls are not meant to be together. And so the best thing that could happen for a soul is to just get out of a body, right? And that's influential for the church in Corinth. Other philosophies in their day had said, well, there is no such thing as a soul. You just are a body. So when you die, you just stay dead forever, right? And those, both of those philosophies, both of those thoughts are still around today. So this still matters for us today. This church in Corinth was tempted to turn away for all of these like philosophical objections around them that are like, oh yeah, that does seem kind of influential, kind of true. Like how could God raise a body from the dead? Like what body will I be resurrected in? Is God going to bring back every atom of my body to be a different body or the same body? Like what if my body gets burned up after I die? How is God going to resurrect that? Right? How can God resurrect a body that is the same self that I am now, but also different? How can I be me, but in a different resurrected body or a somewhat different resurrected body? And their doubts about how God can resurrect bodies led them to doubt if God would. Right? They let the city around them make them feel foolish for the things that they had previously believed in. And that's what Paul's rebuking, that, that impulse to be like, well, the city seems pretty, pretty convincing, so let's just like walk away from what we had previously confessed. And his answer to their question is, look around you. Paul uses two analogies from things that are just common in the world around them that everybody could see to try and convince them, like, no, the city is wrong when it tells you resurrection is foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow in the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So his first analogy is from seeds, right? If we look around us, all around us in nature, there's examples of like little things dying and then coming back to life differently, right? Even seeds tell this truth if we look around us carefully. Out of death comes new life. Nature is full of examples of life from death. Caterpillars, right, they make themselves little tombs and then they come back and they're different, right? Seeds, we, they go into the ground and it seems like they're dead, but then they come back alive. Or forest fires, right? Burns down the forest, but then immediately like green stuff starts to spring up. So if we're paying attention, Paul says, God is teaching us about the truth of life from death all around us, all the time, right? In the Old Testament, the psalmist, probably David, says, only the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Why does the author of that psalm say that? Well, because we look around us and we see evidence of God all around us. The second analogy that Paul uses to try to convince them is um, the analogy of variety. Like, why are you so caught up on it being different, Corinthians? There's all different kinds of bodies around us all the time anyway. For all flesh is not the same, but there's one kind for humans and another kind for animals and another kind for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly body is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. Again, Paul says, look around you, Corinthians. Look around you now. Look around you, Blake, right? All around you, each kind of body that we see has its own kind of peculiar and unique God-given purpose and glory. So different purposes, different glories, different plans of God require different bodies. 
And so their philosophical questions led them to doubt. And Paul is saying, like, even if you just look at the basics of the world around you, right, dead things come back to life around you or seemingly dead things do. And different bodies have different purposes and different glories because God's in control of their different purposes, right? God is behind all that variety in nature. So couldn't he also be powerful enough to be behind the different glory and different purpose of a resurrected body? Right? When we look with faith at the evidence around us, then our eyes can be opened by the Spirit through our faith to see some really profound promises of God all around us. Right? So Paul has made the case. The resurrection body is not foolish. Right? It's not crazy. God isn't crazy. Our faith isn't crazy. There's some fundamental things that help us be like confident in that fact. So if we are confident, if we're looking for the evidence with faith, then now we can be free to examine the more important question, like what is the resurrection body like? Paul moves on. He starts with, so it is, in the next section, which means he's, he's moving forward. So it is with the resurrection of the body. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul says it is time to apply those analogies to our bodies and to our future. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Seeds, variety all around us, that's what it's like for us too. Andrew Wilson, who is a British theologian and pastor, says this, my future body is to my current body what an oak tree is to an acorn, identifiably the same, and with the life of the new emerging from the corpse of the old, but at the same time greater to an unimaginable degree. I mean unimaginable quite literally. There is no way you could look at an acorn and imagine what an oak tree was like unless you had seen one. And it will be the same with the resurrection. What Paul is saying and what Andrew Wilson is applying for us is that what is planted in our bodies in death, like our bodies planted in the ground in death, will be reaped by God to a greater degree of glory, a different purpose and a different glory, right? Perishable now, but imperishable then, Paul says, right? Perishable is a weird word we don't use a lot, but it really just means like apt to decay, right? We are moving towards decay and towards corruption just by our nature of being human beings. Things don't often get better the older they get, unless it's like wine, but then even that has a certain point where it's cut off. And our bodies definitely don't tend to get better as they get older. Different, glorious in their own way, but maybe not working quite the same as they were. Dishonorable now, glorious then. What does he mean by dishonorable? Not shameful, I don't think, but not glorious, not as honorable as what will be, right? Sometimes my body feels a little dishonorable right now, but it won't ever again once I'm raised from the dead. Weak now, but raised in power, right? All of the aches and pains of aging or just of being alive, right? The fact that none of us can actually say with real confidence that we're invincible, right? Our bodies are just like, we tend to get hurt easily. It doesn't take much to hurt us. Right? It doesn't take much to make us feel weak and feel like things aren't working right, right? 
Like I, for instance, I had a really busy week this week and I carried a lot of stress this week and I didn't get great sleep on Friday night because I went to bed thinking about this one thing I was stressed about and I woke up Saturday morning thinking about the thing that I was stressed about still and just from one week of being kind of busy and kind of stressed out, Saturday morning I kind of like broke down and almost had a panic attack, right? Like it doesn't take much for me to feel weak. I just had a stressful week and I didn't get very good sleep for one night and my body reacted to all of those things for the week and just like panic rose up in me, anxiety rose up in me, right? So weakness is like natural to who we are, but raised in power, right? That reaction in my resurrected body is not gonna happen. Natural now, and when he says natural, he means fallen, tending towards sin, Spiritual or heavenly then, and spiritual is a description of quality, not a description of substance, right? We're not going to be spiritual bodies that are like ghosts, but we'll be spiritual in quality, right? Which is opposed to natural now, not fallen, not under the power of death, not under the power of curse, but heavenly, right? Glorious. So the life that you live now with aches and pains and anxieties, myself, aging, dying, suffering, right? Paul says that that life is a seed. That body that you have now is a seed of the kind of glory and purpose that God will raise us in. When we are raised and we still have bodies, they will be the full fruit of what God has sown in us, right? And these are all results of the fact that through Jesus, death has been abolished, right? That's the how of our resurrection bodies. How is God bringing this about? Through Jesus. As it was with Jesus, Paul says, so it will be with us. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. But there's another Adam. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. First fallen, first tending towards corruption and perishing and decay and anxiety and suffering. And then the spiritual, which is not bound by those things. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are also those who are of heaven. This one is important. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, guess what? This is a promise. So we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, who is Jesus, right? He's talking about two different Adams here. If you don't know, Adam uh, is the name of the very first man God ever created, And because he's the first man that God ever created, Adam stands sort of like as the the type or the pattern or the blueprint for all of humanity afterwards. And because Adam sinned, that blueprint, that type, that pattern for all of humanity is also in Adam and in our own choices bound to sin, bound to be natural, bound to be fallen, conquered by death. Right? But the last Adam is Jesus. And Paul and the rest of the writers of the Bible compare Adam to Jesus because Jesus actually starts a new blueprint for human beings, a new kind, a new type, a new pattern for humans. So if we are in Jesus, that means we are in and according to that new pattern, that new blueprint. Right? So just like we bore Adam's image, which, through which we were subjected to death and to sin, and to being corrupted and dishonorable and natural and weak through Jesus, right, as the first fruit, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Through Jesus, through his resurrection, right, we actually get to bear the life of a new creation in Jesus. 
Jesus is the head of the new creation in the same way that Adam was the head of the old creation. We get to bear his image in power. Adam couldn't breathe the breath of life into his own nostrils. Genesis 1 says, Genesis 2 actually, sorry, says that God formed dust from the ground and that dust wasn't alive until God breathed into it. Adam couldn't bring himself to life, right? But Paul says here that Jesus is a life giver because he conquered death. That's what Paul means by life-giving spirit. Not that Jesus is a spirit, but in the same way that the spirit gives life, Jesus is now able to give life. There's another theologian named G.K. Beale who says this, that Christ has become the life-giving spirit does not mean that Christ has become only a purely spiritual being. Jesus still has a body, folks. Or that somehow Jesus has become the Holy Spirit. Rather, the focus is on the notion that through his resurrection, he's come to be identified with the life-giving function of the Spirit, right? Jesus is able to give us new life right, to raise us up into a new kind of living, right? The Gospels, which are the first four books of the New Testament, make this really clear through a couple of illustrations, right? In John chapter 11, Jesus has this friend named Lazarus, and Lazarus has gotten sick and has died. And Jesus comes to Lazarus's tomb, and he's weeping with Lazarus's family because Lazarus has died. And then, in a mighty act of God, in a miracle, to show who he is, to show that he's God and he has power over life, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And here's a little detail that I miss actually often, I think some of us miss, that Lazarus, when he comes out of the grave, still has his grave clothes on. The wrappings that they were embalmed him in, he's still covered and wrapped up in those wrappings, right? So Lazarus comes out of the grave still sort of like captured by fallenness. Lazarus is still a natural man is what that, those grave clothes are trying to teach us, right? He's still in the first Adam, even though he's been raised from the dead temporarily. Lazarus dies again at the end of his life. He's not raised to eternal life. He's raised for a little bit more life. But Jesus, in John chapter 20, raises from the dead. And it says in John chapter 20 that a couple of Jesus' disciples run to the tomb because they're curious to figure out if this is true, that Jesus has actually come back from the dead. And when they stoop and look into Jesus' tomb, the only thing that they find in the tomb is his grave clothes. Jesus left those behind. He doesn't wear them anymore. The Bible begins with... Adam and his wife Eve sinning. And before they sinned, it says that they were naked, but they were unashamed. They had never sinned before, so it didn't matter if they were naked. There was nothing to be worried about, right? But after they sin, it says that they noticed that they were naked and they tried to make themselves some clothes, and those clothes were made out of leaves, which doesn't work super well. And so God, in his mercy, made them clothes out of animal skin. And that was an act of mercy from God. He's giving them clothes, but it's also symbolically really profound. Adam and Eve were meant to be like heavenly, clothed in God's glory, but now they're clothed like animals. But at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, God gives John, who is one of his apostles, one of his followers, a vision of the end of mankind, of the end of our story, of the resurrection. And in John's vision, the Christians, the followers of Jesus, are not clothed in animal skins. They're clothed in the same clothes that Jesus wears, right? Garments of white is what Jesus shows up in throughout the book of Revelation. And then at the end, the followers of Jesus, they're also wearing garments of white, right? Grave clothes left behind. We don't wear those anymore either because we're in Jesus, 
right? The resurrection of the body, right? Both of those illustrations from either John or Revelation reveal that in Jesus, we share a new form of life. Grave clothes are gone. Animal skins are gone. Jesus took on everything broken to make us whole. He was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in his glory. He clothed himself in grave clothes first and then left those behind by conquering death to give us new clothes of righteousness and of life. That matters, right? That actually dictates the way that we view the end of humanity, the end of our story, right? The Christian story is not a post-apocalyptic or dystopian story, right? The Christian story is not War of the Worlds. It's not The Walking Dead. Like, none of those are our story. Right? Our story is to leave grave clothes behind and walk in newness of life with him. Right? That matters for us. Let's talk about how that matters in a few ways. So here's some application points. The resurrection is about the new creation. Right? In Genesis, the goal actually that God gives mankind is to take the good things that God gave, him, gave them and spread them all around the world. So the Garden of Eden or Paradise, I don't know if you've ever heard talk about Paradise or the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden actually in God's good plans is not as good as it's meant to get, right? It was good. It was innocent and sinless before Adam sinned and brought sin in, but it wasn't as good as God had planned for it to get, right? First creation, friends, is not final creation. There's a difference. The resurrection is actually as good as it gets for the world, and you get to be a part of that in Jesus. God's plan for redemption in the Garden of Eden, God's plan for creation, was for all of the world, all of the physical world around you to get covered in his goodness and glory. And that's still the plan. The plan isn't broken just because Adam and Eve sinned. God's plan for redemption is not just to restore mankind in our soul, and we just get to go in our soul and be with him, but to restore all things physically. I don't know if we think about that enough. The end of the book of Revelation is a physical world, a physical new creation raised and renewed by Jesus. Just like our bodies will be physically raised, so will the whole world. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, behold, I am making all things new. And that's not just a concept for Jesus, that's truth. So curse and chaos and death are defeated by Jesus for us, yes, but also for all of creation. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I know that the Bible promises it. Right? So how we handle the world around us as stewards of God's creation, how we are fruitful and multiply and cover the earth with glory still matters for us. Like I'm thinking about the, the back to school bash and I'm thinking about the fact that at the end of the book of Revelation, there's also a city, a physical real city called the New Jerusalem. That's kind of like the capital city of the new creation if you wanna think about it that way. And so the way it, it, to me, makes me think about like the way that we engage cities, the way that we're for renewal of cities physically, because the end of our story is a physical city, that matters. Like we're reaching forward for the new Jerusalem when we do the back to school bash. Not only does all of creation matters, but your body matters. Jesus came in a body to redeem our bodies. Jesus died in the flesh to abolish death in the flesh. Jesus was raised in the body to glorify the body. In 1 Corinthians, earlier on in the book, he said, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. The book of Revelation doesn't end with a spiritual, non-physical, new heaven and new earth, and Paul knows that too in the book of 1 Corinthians. It ends on earth with the still incarnate, still in a body, Jesus Christ, 
ruling over a physical new creation filled with people raised with their bodies, your body, my body. So yes, your resurrection body will be different, transformed like a seed into a fruitful plant, but it will still be your body, different but in continuity. The way that you treat your body, the way that you allow your embodiedness, the fact that you have a body, right, dictates things about how we live, right? My body dictates my gender because God gave me this body and it matters. How I work or how I rest matters, the way that I treat my body. I'm not a workhorse, I'm not a machine because God gave me a body that needs rest. The value of the lives around us matters. The way that we treat other people's bodies because God gave them a body because he loves them and he loves our bodies. You are always eternally going to have a body in Jesus Christ. So we need to live like they matter. Live with joy and not the end, right? I talked about post-apocalyptic movies at the beginning, right? That's not our story, so we live with joy. The Christian answer to the question of history and where is everything going, right, is actually hopeful. Not because of governments or science or our ability to figure things out, but because it's in God's hands. The end or the goal or the climax of our story, right, is foretasted, foreshadowed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we can look at life with hope. We can have hope. And lastly, we can let the resurrection motivate our obedience to God, right? In the book of Titus, which is also another letter, so we call a lot of the New Testament books books, but a lot of, most of them are letters, actually. And in Titus, Paul is writing a letter to his friend named Titus. It's a good title for the book then. Uh, and he uses the promises of eternal life in Jesus Christ um, to teach Titus about how Titus should lead his fellow believers, right? Titus was a pastor, right? And Paul's using promises of eternal life to teach Titus how to pastor his people to obedience, he says this to Titus, he, God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So God saved us through the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So God saved us. He gave us a promise of eternal life. What do we do next? The saying is trustworthy. And I want you, Titus, as a pastor, to insist on these things. Insist that you have been saved by Jesus, not because of your works, I'm saying that to you now, not as a pastor, but as your friend, right? You have been saved by Jesus through his glory and his mercy. And if you believe in Jesus and have been saved by him, you have a promise of eternal life in Jesus. But we need to insist on those things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You are not saved by your good works, but the promise of resurrection motivates us and insists that we be devoted to good works. The philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard says this, grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning, right? So the fact that we don't control the end of our story and the fact that our resurrection is sealed by God's grace in Jesus Christ, right? That doesn't mean we get a pass on being good stewards of the life and the faith that God has given to us, right? In fact, the truly spiritual body, Paul talked about spiritual bodies, right? The truly spiritual body that we're meant to inhabit in Jesus Christ is one that bears the image of Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus' life looked like. He literally died for people that hated him. Like he made his enemies his friends. 
He was radically generous, right? He loved his neighbors. He sought to make peace and preserve unity when it would have been easier to just be like, I'm done with you guys, right? He was willing to be humbled and not just humbled, but humiliated for the sake of others, right? So a truly spiritual body that bears God's image right now like a seed, but someday fully, is gonna look like Jesus's life. And that's what Jesus's life looked like. It wasn't easy, right? But it was obedient to the will of his father in heaven, even to the point of death. That's what the resurrection is calling us to as well, right? The hope of the resurrection though, as we're looking at the baptismal waters is not, right? It's not, it's not something that is just motivated by our own like effort and ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstrap, right? We don't earn that. The baptismal waters actually tell us that in the spirit, we are raised with, with Jesus in newness of life. So as we're gonna come to uh, the table of communion this morning, as we're also looking at the baptismal waters this morning, we have two reminders. One of Jesus's death and the fact that Jesus's death and what it earns for us is present to us by Jesus's grace while we eat and also Jesus's resurrection. We have two very physical reminders for us this morning. So as you come and take communion in just a minute, would you actually let these two things sort of shape our attitude and the way that we take this moment seriously and the way that we come, at, come to it with joy? Okay, let's pray together.